hopefully, and I'll remind you to bring uh, each time your Bible, pen and pencil, and paper. Not so much that I may, hopefully I do, but that I may give you some things to write down and jot down. But the main purpose is for you to write things as we look at the 23rd Psalms that you want to continue thinking about and meditating on and doing additional uh, study. And so I encourage you to do that. Um, because as I said, one of the reasons that we're doing the 23rd Psalm is that it seems that in the life of God's people, we are either going through in or out of difficult circumstances. And this is a psalm that can give us comfort. Also, the other purpose is, is that it's a very well-known psalm. It's a very well-known part of the scriptures. And there's a tendency when we know scriptures or we've read them before to quickly read through them saying, yeah, I read that before. We pastors even can be guilty because we'll read a passage looking for a sermon topic as opposed to seeing the depth of what the scriptures have to say. And Psalms 23 has tremendous depth. And so uh, we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at the scriptures literally word by word uh, to understand better the richness of this and other passages. So I'm hoping as you study this passage, other passages, you know, like John 3, 16, other scriptures that the church knows very well and we uh, memorize and rattle off, but it's so part of the memory that we don't catch the tremendous depth of what God has to say. And so last week we took a look at the first verse, and I want to just quickly uh, summarize that. The, the scripture was, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The amazing thing is that it's the Lord, the one and only God of heaven and earth. Yahweh, Jehovah, the I am that I am, that God is currently my individual, not our, but my shepherd, the one who cares for me, the one who protects me, the one that provides for me. So much so that as the scripture says that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he laid down his life for his sheep. He also says that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And so in that, we understand that that God is our shepherd. It's an amazing concept. So many people want to tell you that if there was a God and if he did create the earth, that after he made the earth and mankind, he just kind of went away and let us run amok. That's not what the scripture says, and that's not what Psalms 23 says. So he says that he's my shepherd. And then there's a thought, well, maybe that may be true for others, but I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm a law sheep, I'm whatever, and then I'm not worthy. I want you to understand two people. We took a look at Jacob, also known as Israel, that at the end of his life, he acknowledged that God was his shepherd. Now, 
Jacob, at best, had a checkered past. He was not a perfect individual. David, who wrote this psalm, was going through probably some very difficult times. But David himself was not perfect. David lied, committed adultery, murder, did all of those things uh, being the king of Israel, and yet he wrote this psalm. So it doesn't matter how close you may think you're to God or how far away you may be to God, that he is your shepherd. And then it says that I shall not want. It's a kind of a dual statement in the sense of that I do not want. Presently, there's nothing that that is not provided for me by the shepherd and shall a statement of faith that in the future, there is nothing that my shepherd will not provide for me. And so as we go acknowledging that he is my shepherd, that he is your shepherd, there are certain benefits of him being your shepherd. And we're going to take a look at that over the next couple of weeks. And so in verse two, it says this, he makes me, lie down in green pastures. Again, he is God. He is the one who created heaven and earth. He is my shepherd. He is the one who is leading me. And it says he makes me. There are times when we do not understand the benefits that God is giving to us or his wisdom or his leading. And so there are some times that we do things because he requires it of us that we wouldn't do ordinarily. Now to show as an example of this, parents will frequently make their children brush their teeth. They'll make their children go to school. They'll make their children do their homework. It's not something that children want to do. It's something that usually adults, their parents, require of them so that they will become independent adults and learn it and acquire wisdom. And so hopefully, initially, when you have young children, you make them brush their teeth. But then you know when you've accomplished something, when they no longer require you to tell them to brush their teeth, that you do it because they understand that your teaching has been beneficial to them. And so there are times that God as our shepherd makes us to do things. And in this case, it says he makes me individually to lie down. Now, sheep and other types of uh, farm animals and livestock and even uh, uh, animals of the wild, whether it be uh, deer or uh, giraffes or whatever, do not like to lie down. Part of the reason for this is that if they do, it takes considerable effort to get back up again. And if they do, then they may be subject to being preyed upon by their predators, whether it be lions or wolves or whatever. And so by not lying down, they are ready to run because that's generally one of their only defense mechanisms. But Jesus is telling us that in his leading, we are safe to lie down. It's been said that if everyone else but you is running around like their hair is on fire, then you just don't understand the seriousness of the situation. However, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us and to teach us 
Is it that he has it, that we can trust him, that we can lie down? And so he has us to do that. But notice he just doesn't have us lie down anywhere. He has us lie down in green pastures, green pastures, those that have abundance of, of food for the, the sheep to eat. That is comfortable because the grass is certainly easier to lay upon than rocky ground. And so he being our shepherd makes us to lie down in green pastures so that I know that all that I need is present and that I am safe and comfortable in that place. Now to follow up on some of the scriptures to reinforce that is one which I won't cite the, the address, but one that all too often we will say, but have great difficulty doing. It is be still and know that I am God. Part of the making me to lie down in green pastures, being still, not fretting, not running around uh, with my hair on fire, but understanding that my shepherd has brought me to a safe place. Other scriptures to reinforce this point is in Matthew eleven twenty eight. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice he says that if you need rest, you will find it in him. If you're carrying around all these burdens, you can lay them down because Jesus will give you rest in green pastures, that he will give you rest not only for your body, but for your soul. Psalm 73, 13 says this, So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. Part of what we need to do as following this shepherd and understanding that he has brought us to green pastures that are his pastures, that we should praise him and give him thanks for that. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep, sheep of his pasture. Again, reemphasizing that you and I as believers are his sheep, that he is our shepherd, my shepherd, your shepherd, and that he leads us to his pastures. Ezekiel 34, 14, again, written many centuries after David said this, predicting what God would do. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. They will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. So again, Jesus has told us that he is a good shepherd, and he is going to do these things. The second part of verse 2 says this, He leads me beside quiet waters. Again, he, God, our shepherd, is the one who is doing the action. And it says he leads. To lead means that you go out in front. You'll hear about generals who will lead their troops into battle, which means they're not behind the front lines, that they are in the front with their troops, commanding and leading the army. 
Jesus isn't telling us where to go. He tells us that he leads us. And for those of you who are directionally challenged, this is a great blessing. It's not that Jesus says, well, go down a mile and a half, make a left, go to the, the oak tree, and then go another quarter of a mile, and then you'll see a, a hill, go around that hill, and then you'll see what I'm wanting you to go. No, he doesn't give us directions. He leads us. And he leads me beside. Not into, but by, in front of quiet waters. Quiet the idea that the waters are not rushing, they're not foaming, uh, they're not causing additional anxiety, but they're quiet waters. It doesn't say that they're still waters, that they're quiet. Sheep generally like still, quiet waters. They don't like dead stop water. They like waters that stream slowly and quietly. And so the waters here are not in an uproar. They're waters of rest and calm so that I may drink freely without concern. Water has a sig significant theme in scriptures. John chapter 4, verse 10. Understanding that in the physical realm, water is that which is necessary to provide and sustain life. And using that physical aspect in John 4.10, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well says this, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So we are being led by our shepherd to quiet waters that are living waters. In John chapter 7, the same gospel, starting with verse 37 through 39, it says this, Now on the last day of the great feast, and this feast was the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was a, the seventh feast of the year, towards the end of the year, around September. And in that, part of the ceremony in Jesus' time was the pouring of water. And so Jesus using that, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus in his earthly ministry discusses that which if we call upon him and believe in him, that those living waters, if you will, the Holy Spirit will flow up in us as living water. And even in Revelation, in the future, it says this in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So again, there's that constant idea that water is that which God gives us that is living, life-sustaining, but not just physical life-sustaining, but spiritual life-sustaining. And then going back to Psalms 46, 1 through 4, and actually I'm going to read to verse 9. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear 
though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. He says, even if that's all going on, he says this, that because God is our refuge, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we will see light. So we see constantly that God is telling us that if you trust him, that if you allow him to lead you, he will lead you to not only physical, but most importantly, spiritual life. It's amazing. One of the benefits that we have of Jesus being our good shepherd is that he makes us lie down. He makes us still. He gives us comfort and security and provision. He leads us to life-sustaining water where it's calm. He does more than that. Verse 3 says this, He restores my soul. He again is my shepherd, my God, the God of the universe. Again, I want to emphasize over and over, God didn't just make man and go away. He is intimately involved in your life and in my life. And he, as a good shepherd, restores my soul. Again, as I said, he is the Lord, the good shepherd. He says restores. Restore is to take something and return it to its original condition. So I want to use a couple of examples. Some people like classic cars. And usually if you find one that's completely restored, it costs a lot of money. So a lot of times what people will do is buy one that is in not such a good condition. It's cheaper, and also because they like the restoration process. And so they'll take that car, let's say a 66 Mustang, which is one of my favorite older cars, red fastback. God takes that and restores it to new. He doesn't repair it. He doesn't make it look like new. He says he restores Another example, a week or two ago, I watched a, um, a program, and they were showing how to restore a piano. I was very impressed because I know that there are the keys, the white ivory keys and the black keys, and I know that there's string, and I know that there's what I call hammers. I don't know if that's the accurate term, and there's felt. But even all of the surrounding wood and whatever is in myriad of pieces. And so I watched in this program how they disassemble the entire 
piano. They took the paint and the varnish and scraped it off, put new paint, new varnish. They took whatever wood that had been uh, misused and replaced it. They took the strings and made sure that they were tuned correctly, that each of the uh, keys hit the hammer the way it should and create the sound. Uh, and when they were done, you could not tell that that piano had been restored. It looked as if it were new. And that what God does as our shepherd. He doesn't just repair you. He doesn't just put glue and say, okay, plenty good enough. But it's he, God, who restores. Too often, we want to make resolutions that will be better, that we will learn more, that we will be better, we'll do these various things. God isn't asking us to turn over a new leaf. He's not asking us to be a better version of ourselves. He's saying that I want to restore you. When God created Adam and Eve, he made them in his image. But when Adam and Eve sinned, in essence, they marred that image. So much so that people even today will say, well, there can't be a God because look at all the way people treat each other because we've marred the image of God. But Jesus, our shepherd, won't fix us. He doesn't take a broken plate, put glue on it, and mend it back together, and it appears to be broken. He restores it like new. And he doesn't just restore, if you will, physical things. He says, he restores again my. This is personal. I want you to get that. This psalm is personal. It's about you. It's about me. It's about David. It's about us individually. He restores my soul. I heard someone say, just because you've been brokenhearted doesn't mean that you're broken. However, many of us, because of the way we've conducted our lives or whatever, have broken our souls. It needs to be restored. It needs to be made new. It needs a Savior. And so the Good Shepherd doesn't just make us better. He makes us like new. He restores my soul. My soul that eternal aspect of who I am, my soul that will live in the next age to come, either in his presence because he's my shepherd or out of his presence because I denied him. And then he does another thing that is of great benefit to us as his sheep. The second line of the verse three is this. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Again, he is God. He's the one that is doing this. So as I said, how can we think that God is afar off, that he doesn't care? Look at how he's leading, how he's guiding, how he's making us do for our benefit. So he, God, guides me. Now, guides, again, 
unless you are an adventurer, you usually don't need a guide. Um, sometimes you may go to a, a museum and to get the most benefit out of the museum, uh, you will get somebody to guide you through the museum to tell you all the significant articles and artifacts in that museum to give you greater appreciation. But my, my mind kind of goes to uh, climbing Mount Everest. Most people don't know how to do that. There is a base camp that you get to and you have to acclimate yourself, but there are guides there who have made the trip before, who understand how to get to the top of Mount Everest in the most judicious and least hazardous way. So they guide. And again, Jesus isn't there to tell you how to do this. He's there to guide you, to be there with you as you walk through. So it's, again, he guides me, personal. One of the great benefits that the Jews have in, in their teaching is even in Passover, which is coming up soon, when they go through the Passover, they don't say, well, many generations ago, uh, God freed our ancestors, and now we celebrate that we're no longer slaves, but we're free people. No, they say, in essence, that God freed them, that it was he who delivered them from bondage. They make it personal. And again, that's what David has done in this psalm, continually talking about that is me. And then it says, in the paths of righteousness. Now notice he didn't say the freeway of righteousness. He said the path of righteousness. A path usually is a, is a small little road, if you will, and not even a road, somewhere where that is worn, that people have walked over and over and over, and so the ground is created in such a way that you know people have gone there before. And so it is, he's guiding me in the path of righteousness. So God is giving direction to me. There's a story that another uh, evangelist told, and I've shared it once before, and I will share it again. Uh, his name is J. John Cannon, and so uh, it was his story, so I don't want to make it look like uh, I'm doing something uh, original. And he said that as you're walking along a path, and the path forks in the road, one going to the left and one going to the right. And on the left, there's a dead man laying in the road. And on the right, there's a live man. And you're not sure which direction you should go. Who would you ask for directions? The wise man will ask the living person. Now, there are lots of religions that will tell you how to get places, how to attain righteousness, how to attain nirvana, how to attain paradise. But all of the heads of those religions died and stayed dead. Jesus, our good shepherd, died, was buried, 
and was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. He's alive. He has knows this path. As he said in John, he's the door. He's the way. He's the access to the Father. And so the path is not any path. The path is of righteousness. The right standing with God. The correct standing with God. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 says, Or in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So this path, taking the correct fork in the road, if you will, is based on your faith in God. Your faith that Jesus is your good shepherd. Now notice, we don't believe that he raised from the dead and hope so. It's a fact and basis and our whole faith, our whole religion, if you will, our whole being is based on that historical fact. And if it's not a historical fact, then Christians are quite frankly wasting their time. So we proceed on this path of righteousness by living by faith. Proverbs chapter 2 verse 20 says this, So you walk, so you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. So there is a path that the righteous take and there's a path that others take. Also says, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright path. Second Timothy verse two twenty says this. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. So Paul writing to Timothy says that we need to flee from those things that will cause us to get off the path of righteousness and to pursue righteousness. Not just let it happen, to be intentional about it. Matthew 6, 31 through 33, Jesus talking says this, Do not worry then saying, what will he eat? Or what will we drink? Or what we will wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So you see, again, Jesus tells us, keep the main thing, the main thing as the main thing. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek that path of righteousness. And God will provide all the rest. Because he is the good shepherd. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says this in Jesus speaking. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Most of us 
like to be popular. Most of us like to be well thought of. Most of us want to be in the group. And even when we say we want to be individuals, we tend to do things that cause us to be identified with other individuals. And so we like to oftentimes go to churches that have a lot of people. Or we like to do uh, concerts or whatever where there are a lot of people because it makes us feel better, makes us feel good. However, just because something is popular doesn't make it right. As a matter of fact, looking back at the Old Testament, when the people of God had left Egypt and were heading to the Promised Land, they sent spies out to see the land. They sent 12. They came back with two reports. Ten of the spies said, Oh man, it's, it's, a, it's a great land. The, the grapes are huge and everything, but the people there are giants and we are like grasshoppers in both our eyes and in theirs. And so they said we shouldn't go in. The two gave a minority report and said, no, no, God gave this land to us. Let's take it. And the people of God followed the majority opinion. And so don't be wrapped up in what other people say or think. What is it that the voice of God says? Because, again, as we said, he is a good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice and follow him. So follow Jesus even if, and it will be narrow, as Jesus himself says, and few will find it. But the destination is awesome because that destination is the very presence of God himself. John chapter 14, verses 2 through 6, says this. And oftentimes we will quote this scripture in addition to the scripture we use in Psalm 23 at a, a funeral or a memorial service. And that's one of the things that... Um, is again why I am using this particular song. Because oftentimes, this is when it's read. And when it's read, people are clouded with grief. And they hear it, but they don't hear it. And there's a, a sense that seeking some comfort. But the comfort is more in what we're going to be talking about next week. But there's comfort in the here and now. As Jesus is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He guides me. He restores me. And so in John, again, it says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where And that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now Jesus tells them, you know the way. Because I have been with you. I have been teaching you. I have been guiding you. I have been leading you. I have been making you to lay down. But Thomas, as most of us, are a little more dense than we'd like to admit. We're more like sheep than we would like to admit. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And, he, and this is Paul, uh, Thomas is saying, 
We don't know the final destination. We don't know what road to take to get there. While in that time it said all roads led to Rome, Jesus is probably not going to Rome. So where is he going and how do I get there? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Father but through me. So you see the paths of righteousness is Jesus himself. He's the way to righteousness. He's the way to righteousness through faith in him. And then Psalm 5.8 says this, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, I want to follow you. And there are those who don't want me to follow you, that they're my enemies. And yet, I'm struggling. So Lord, don't make the road winding. Make it straight so that I can find the road and stay on it. But then he says something very, the psalmist says something very interesting. The second line says this, for his name's sake. Again, for his. It's because of, for the benefit of his, the good shepherd, the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, for his name's sake. God does the leading you in the paths of righteousness. And we can be assured of that because otherwise his name would suffer. He is going to make sure that you get to where you need to be for his leading and guidance because his name would be affected if he did it. One of the examples I want you to, to know about that to avoid the fact that his name is holy and would not allow anything to taint that name. I want to give you an example found in Exodus 32, 7 through 14. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to talk about it. God had had it up to here with his people. They constantly bickered. They constantly complained. God would provide them water and manna, and manna wasn't good enough to provide them meat, and they would still complain. They'd complain about God, and they'd complain about Moses, and they just simply complained. They kept saying, aren't there enough graves in Egypt? Why'd you bring us out here? And they were just belly aching all the time. And so God finally said, that's it. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with Moses. Moses said, Lord, if you do that, Egypt and the rest of the nations will say, you weren't able to accomplish this, that you couldn't do this, and that's why the people died, and your name would be affected, because your name is holy. Your name is hallowed. So God, for your name, if for no other reason, do this. Keep the people alive. Now, the funny thing is, the more that Moses saw just the obstinates and outright debauchery of the people, he was ready to wipe them out as well. But he interceded for God's people, not saying that they were worthy of it, but that God's name was worthy of it. 
And so the last scripture I want to talk about is Psalm 29.2. It says this, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. You see, the Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. How awesome is that shepherd? There are all kinds of reasons to praise him. Each of these partial verses give us more than enough reason to praise him. And even in the times when you don't think that you'll make it, that you think that God doesn't hear you, that your prayers don't go above the ceiling, that you are unworthy of God's leading. Remember this. He does it for his name's sake. What comfort that I don't have to be a superman. I don't have to be super religious. Just need to hear his voice and to follow. Just need to walk in the paths of righteousness and make that my primary goal in life. Knowing that that path is narrow. So narrow, the only way to enter is through the door called Jesus. Next week, we're going to take a look at other benefits that the shepherd gives us. But I want you to contemplate these first three verses. Because we so quickly read past them. And yet they provide comfort and security and solace that God knows, that God cares, that he leads, that he guides. He loves you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you're our shepherd. We thank you, you are the good shepherd that laid down your life for us. God, there are times when we try to get away from you, and that voice may seem a little less loud. But your word also says, God, that as a good shepherd, you will leave the 99 and seek out the one that is lost. So God, if there's one who's participated in this Bible study, who feels separated from you, bring them home. God, if there are those who have wandered off the path because it's the other popular way, God, help us to get back on that narrow path. And God, thank you that your promises are so certain that your name is on it. God, for those who are anxious, may they see the security and comfort 
in these verses. For it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. God bless you. And we'll see you next time.